Please turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be tonight in verses 22 through 33 of Ephesians chapter 5. I'm reading from the ESV. Please follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5, 22-33 is a, a glorious text. It's a text that married couples should memorize. It's a text that every married couple should study together and seek to apply. And it's also a text that encompasses those who are single. Uh, because in addition to saying much about marriage... Ephesians 5 tells us much about the relationship of Christ to his church. Uh, it's, it's sad to me that this text sometimes gets uh, relegated simply to uh, the text for marriage counseling or the text to be read at weddings or the text to use to beat husbands and wives over the head when they're not performing their unique roles inside the marriage relationship. But this text is so much more glorious than that. Uh, because actually the main point of Ephesians 5 is to uh, explicate for us the relationship between Christ and his church. And to show us the picture that marriage is of Christ and his bride, his body, which is the church. Now I mentioned last Sunday night that beginning in early June, uh, we will begin a regular exposition of the book of Ephesians. And uh, when we get to Ephesians 5 in that regular exposition, God willing... Uh, I will say much more about marriage between uh, a husband and a wife. But tonight, I want to focus more on what this text says about the relationship of Christ to his bride, which is the church. And before we open up this text and I share with you my outline, I need to give uh, sort of one interpretive disclaimer or one interpretive uh, comment to share with you. Okay, some of you may be familiar with the distinction. We talk about the church in two different ways. We talk about the local church. We talk about the universal church or the global church. Theologians, pastors have different ways of expressing that difference. Well, what are we getting at with that distinction? Well, when we refer to the local church, one of the ways the Bible uses the word church is to describe uh, local congregations of God's people, a local congregation just like this. Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem is a local church. Okay? So, for example, when Paul says in Romans 16, uh, he says, The church that meets in the home of Priscilla and Aquila greets you. That's a local church, okay? But we have to recognize the Bible uses the word church in another way. 
and, 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 and theologians describe this in various ways, like the universal church or the global church. Okay? For example, when Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church, he's not talking about First Baptist Church, Jerusalem, something like that, because it would be a Baptist church, of course. Uh, but he's, he's not talking about one local congregation. He's talking about this global enterprise, this universal church that encompasses all of God's people in every place throughout every age. And so when we refer to Christ Church Universal, Christ Bride Universal, we're referring to that great company of all of God's people who are from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation uh, throughout every age of the earth who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in Ephesians 5, when Paul uses the word church, and I'll just say this in anticipation of our study of Ephesians, almost every time the word church is used in the book of Ephesians, it's a reference to that universal church, uh, to the global church, to the great company of God's people throughout time. So we need to know as we open up Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is talking about the relationship Christ has not to any one local congregation, certainly it includes every local congregation, uh, but it is to the universal church as Christ's bride. Now I have three goals in preaching this message tonight. The first is to give you a sense of the magnificent grandeur and beauty of Christ's universal church. The second is to stimulate each one of us to greater love, care, and concern for the universal church. Thirdly, to magnify the Christ who gave himself for the church, his bride, and who labors even now to purify and cleanse her for the coming marriage of the Lamb. Those are my goals in the preaching of this message tonight. All right, so four uh, headings for this sermon. The first is this. Uh, We want to see that Christ, first of all, is the church's head and its Savior. Uh, Christ is the universal church's head and its Savior. Look again, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. First, we see in verse 23b that Christ is the head of the church, and he himself is its Savior. First, let's observe that Christ is the head of the church. What does it mean that Christ is head of the church? Well, it means that he's the church's captain. He's the Lord of the church. He rules the church. He gives his law to the church. He leads the church in its mission. He sets the agenda for the church. He is the church's head, and the church is to submit to Christ. Christ as their captain. Christ as their head. The church doesn't make the rules. The church doesn't come up with the agenda. The church doesn't decide what the mission of the church is going to be. The church follows the Lord Christ and his headship. The church is made up of all those people who in every place submit themselves to the authority and headship of Christ. And so the church must always keep its eyes on Christ, its head. He is the head and we take our marching orders from him. Christ sets the agenda for his church. Everything that the church does should be in uh, submissive, humble response to the headship of Christ. And this is important because the church, if it forgets that Christ is its head, will get caught up in all sorts of nice little things that have nothing to do with what Christ as head of the church has called his church to be and do. Because Christ is head of the church, the church should never get sidetracked. Uh, Christ has made his will plain for his church. You know, if you see um, 
Maybe some of you have seen this in a church you've been in before. You might see a wife uh, who has just a poor husband who doesn't lead her well. And she's always wondering, am I doing the right thing? He doesn't really lead. He doesn't really initiate. Uh, it's unclear the direction of our family. And I'm not really sure what the, the vision is. He's not really leading and initiating and assuming his role as head. And uh, wives in a sad situation like that will often wilt under such poor leadership. Well, it's not that way with Christ and his bride. Christ doesn't leave his bride guessing as to what it should be about. Christ's headship and leadership is always decisive. He initiates. He sets the agenda. He communicates clearly what his will is for his bride, the church. And so the bride should always be looking to Christ to see what is it that we ought to be about. How can we submit to his headship? How can we honor him as head of the church? But secondly, we see that Christ is not only the church's head, he is the church's savior. Here's the one who sovereignly saves men and women and draws them into the church. And he delivers his people from their sins and cleanses them from all unrighteousness. And it's his message of salvation that the church is called to proclaim to the world. He is the head of the church. And he is also the one who has saved every sinner who has been brought into the church and makes up Christ's bride. He is the church's head and the church's savior. But now secondly, secondly in our text, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Please look with me at verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. First, let's observe the manner in which Christ loved his church. The manner in which Christ loved his church was the greatest possible expression of love. John 15, verse 13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater expression of love than that, than that one would lay down his life for another. And Ephesians 5 says that Christ did that for his bride, the church. The greatest possible expression of love was conveyed when Christ laid down his life for his bride, the church. But observe also that Christ loved his church when she was unlovely. Christ loved his church when she was unlovely. Many of you may know Romans 5 and verse 8, that God shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us uh, when we had everything together. He didn't die for us because, man, he just thought we were awesome. He just thought, man, I would be so privileged to have someone like that as part of my church. He died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still walking in darkness, while we were still ugly to him. It was in that context, when we were in that state, that he initiated love toward his bride, the church. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ took the initiative, and he loved the unlovely. But observe also that Christ is the one who loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved his church with a particular love. Christ loved his church with a particular love. John 10 and verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, Christ loved his church when she was unlovely. And from heaven he came and he sought her. 
And he pursued her. And he set his particular electing love upon his bride, the church. Christ did not come to make his bride save a bull. He came to save her. He came to win her. He came to have her. He set this special covenant particular love on a particular bride, which is the church. And brothers and sisters, that should be encouraging to you to know that if you are in Christ, and if you have wonderfully, by sovereign grace, been made part of his church, Christ has set his peculiar love on you. His covenant love on you. There's a sense in which it's true that God so loved the world that he gives only begotten. He loves every man indiscriminately, but his church he loves in a particular way. His people he loves in a covenant way. There is a, a covenant love with Christ that is exclusive to his bride, the church. And he has set this special love upon men and women like us and brought us in to be part of the bride. Observe how precious the church is to Christ, that he loved her and that he gave himself up for her. The church is special to the Lord Jesus. It is precious to the Lord Jesus. But now thirdly in our text, the third heading, we see that Christ sanctifies and cleanses his church. Let's look at verse 25 through verse 27. Christ sanctifies and cleanses his church. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's object in saving his church, loving those who were in sin and calling them to be part of his church, Christ's great object in saving his church was so that he would present to himself a bride who was spotless and without blemish and who had been washed and who had been cleansed. And observe how unilateral this work of Christ is. See, um, when I married my wife, Jenna, her father uh, presented her as the bride to me, the groom. But in this text, we read that Christ presents the bride to himself. And it's not as though uh, it's on us now. We've been called by God. We've been elected as his bride. And now we have to wash away all of our sins. No, the action's unilateral. Christ is the one who's making his bride spotless. Christ is the one who's purifying his church. Christ is the one that's seeking to remove every blemish in his bride so that she is without spot or wrinkle. Now, it's it's easy to read um, 21st century American notions of what a marriage is like into this text. And actually, it's surprising how much of our notions actually fit in Ephesians 5. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the show, Say Yes to the Dress. Anybody hear that show, Say Yes to the Dress? I have watched Say Yes to the Dress all of one times, okay? One time. Because my sister-in-law, Erin, uh, who you all, some of you know, uh, you all will meet her, she was actually on Say Yes to the Dress. And if your sister-in-law is on any show, I don't care what show it is, you, you watch it, okay? And Erin, uh, I have to say, she wasn't the bride on the show. What I didn't know until I watched that show is that apparently when a bride is picking out her dress, it's a big community event. Okay? It's not a matter of her just going, finding what she likes, and paying for it and leaving. No, you bring your, your squad, okay? you bring your team to it. And Aaron was part of the squad who helped her sister, Nikki, say yes to the dress. And so she goes there, and they're looking at different dresses. And there's this big reveal at the end where the bride, she has her dress picked out. And she walks out you know, from the dressing room, 
and she just, she just looks gorgeous in that beautiful white gown that she so particularly zeroed in on. And it was just the right gown, and it's pristine and immaculate. If you've ever been to a wedding, uh, that's why the dress is white. It's a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of spotlessness. Well, that's not far removed from the symbol that we have in Ephesians 5. Christ wants his bride to be pure. Christ wants his bride to have all the stains and spots and uncleanliness taken away. It's a symbol of purity. And and actually across all cultures, though not all brides throughout time have worn white, there has always been some sort of symbolism to communicate uh, this idea that brides are to signify spotlessness and, and purity and freedom from blemish. Well, why? Because Christ is purifying his bride, the church. And the reason why we emphasize purity of that bride, even though uh, most people may not know this is why they're symbolizing it, the reason why that's ingrained in our thinking is because of the mystery of Christ and his church. Because one day Christ is going to present to himself a bride. And when he presents that bride to himself in glory, she will be immaculate. She will be washed clean. She will be free of every stain and every wrinkle and every blemish. What a profound thought. What a wonderful thought. Uh, Because I know I have spots and wrinkles and blemishes. But when I am presented to Christ along with the rest of his bride, the church, I'll be free of every stain of sin. And I'll be clean in the presence of our great bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. But now fourthly, fourthly in our text, notice that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church as members of his own body. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church as members of his own body. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loved his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, Now, you might be tempted to think that as Ephesians 5 unfolds, that Paul makes a shift in the analogy or the image that he's using. First, he's comparing the church to his bride. But then, later on in the text, he starts talking about the church as his body. Uh, talking about uh, various, various parts of the body. And we're tempted to say, okay, maybe he's using two images here to convey how precious the church is to him. Uh, but that's not so. What Paul is doing is he's actually extending the image of the bride a little further. Because Paul goes to Genesis, which says, for this reason, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He's acknowledging the sacred union in marriage, of the, the, the one flesh union. And Christ is is, uh, he regards the church so much as his bride that he also re- uh, uh, views the church as his body. Because as his bride, the two become one. And so Christ treats the church as his own body. And just as a husband should love his wife as, as, as like his own flesh, as part of his own body, uh, so Christ loves the church and cherishes and nourishes the church as his own body, as he would his own bride. Now, the word here in the ESV uh, for, cher- or, excuse me, for nourish uh, could mean 
to rear or to bring up, like with reference to children, or to like a, a, a plant. If you planted uh, something in your garden and nourished it, you would be bringing it up and tenderly taking care of it. Uh, so, so, so the Lord says that he nourishes the church as he does his body, and he cherishes it. The idea is tenderness. The Lord loves his church, gives himself up for the church. He is the church's head and the church's savior, but he's tender with his church. And he's nourishing to his church. And he cherishes his church, just like a husband nourishes and cherishes his own wife as his own flesh. What a beautiful and tender picture we're given of Christ and his church. This gets at the idea that Christ is affectionate toward his church. He is sweet and tender toward his church. And it's special to him. It's the apple of his eye. And he nourishes and cherishes it. How precious is Christ's bride to him. Uh, That he is its head and its savior. That he gives himself up for the church. That he nourishes and cherishes the church. That he washes her from every spot and wrinkle. And let me just say, uh, I want to take every opportunity to say this so that I can, just as a, a disclaimer. This is one of the reasons why we will emphasize, as long as God gives us breath from the front, uh, that church membership is crucial. Participation in Christ's church is essential because the promises that Christ makes in Ephesians chapter 5 are unique to Christ's church. We are going to be all for uh, campus ministry and parachurch ministry here at Emmanuel Church. So many groups worthy of our, our, our money and our time and our service and our partnership. But there are promises that Christ makes to his bride, the church, that he never makes to campus crusade. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he never makes to love out loud. That he never makes to RUF. Uh, those ministries are great and they're a help and they're a gift from God to the campuses of this country. But they're not the church. And so participation in Christ's church, there's nothing that can replace it. You need to be part of Christ's bride, the church. You need to see yourself as part of that great company of God's people. And you should seek to uh, uh, signal to the world your identity and participation in that universal church by partnering and committing to a local church, a local body of Christ's people. And that's something we're going to convey again and again and again uh, throughout uh, our time as Emmanuel Church. But now, in the few minutes that remain, I'd like to share a few very specific applications that I've been meditating on and thinking about and praying about for the sake of Emmanuel Church with respect to this text. Four points of application that I'd like to share with you tonight. The question we're asking is, how should the fact that Christ loves his bride, the church, that he is its head and savior, that he has loved her and gave himself up for her, that he is purifying and sanctifying her, that he nourishes and cherishes her, how should that impact us here at Emmanuel Church? I have four points of application, okay? Uh, They're a little bit wordy and long, so if you don't take them down, that's okay. I'd be happy to give you the headings afterwards. First of all, we as God's people ought to passionately, vigorously, and enthusiastically engage ourselves for the well-being of Christ's church, not just locally, but in every place. We, as God's people, ought to passionately, vigorously, and enthusiastically engage ourselves for the well-being of Christ's church, not just at 407 Peachtree Road where Emmanuel Church meets, but in every place. We ought to care about the well-being of the church in China. We ought to care about the well-being of the church in France. 
Whether or not the church is doing well in California is something that should engage our hearts and our prayers. We should have regard for how Christ's cause is going forward in our state of North Carolina, and especially in Winston-Salem. What would it mean if Emmanuel Church just blew up to a thousand people over the next couple of years, but the church in Winston-Salem overall declined? Was that any great victory for the cause of Christ? We might pat ourselves on the back. I think we're doing our part, doing a great job. But I'll tell you what, I'm not going to be happy with that. We want Christ's church to thrive in every place. And though it's in every way appropriate that the local church play a special part in our lives and that we give ourselves in special ways to the membership of a local body, uh, we ought to engage ourselves for every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ in every place. And so if there is a church here that's not doing well and needs our help and support, they will at the very least have our prayers. If not, our, our support and our dollars and our service and commitment If there are missionaries who are going out to different places, we want to know about it. Because we ought to be passionately and enthusiastically engaged in service to the well-being of Christ's church. Because the church is is Christ's bride. And because it's precious to Him. And so brothers and sisters who live in other parts of the world and who are planting churches in different areas, they're precious to Christ and therefore they ought to be precious to us. And that includes churches that don't think exactly like we do. Uh, Churches that are part of different denominations. uh, Churches that have different understandings of uh, passages of Scripture. If they are precious to Christ, if they are His church, then they ought to be precious to us. And it is in every way appropriate that we engage ourselves for their well-being. And so though the Southern Baptist Convention is a very diverse body of churches, we've determined that we're going to partner with them. We're going to do whatever we can to serve them and to help them. Because their well-being as a confederation of churches is an important cause to us. Because so many of those churches are precious to Christ, they've become precious to us. Uh, We're Baptists, we're not Presbyterians, but I care about what happens in the PCA. If that that denomination somehow down the road goes liberal, that, that should grieve us. But if there's a resurgence of orthodox and reformed truth in the context of that great body of churches, we should rejoice and we should pray to that end. And even when we cannot help brothers and sisters on the mission field or in different places, at the very least, we should be able to commit to them our prayers. We should engage ourselves for the well-being of Christ's church, not just locally, but in every place. And I just want to say, it's in every way appropriate that we give special attention to our local body. Uh, you know, we're going to ask that you covenant together as a body of believers, making unique promises to one another to serve and pray for and to help one another on the way to heaven. And so you'll have unique responsibility to this church should you join. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that what is precious to Christ should be precious to us. And all of Christ's people in every true church are precious to him. And so they ought to have our affections, our hearts, our prayers, and God helping us our service as well. We're going to sing after this sermon, a, a song that I've really come to love called I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. We're going to be singing it to a new tune. I want to read just two verses from that song. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye and graven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, and for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. That should be our heart. That should be our posture toward the bride of Christ. But now secondly, second application for us. 
We ought to resist all forms of unnecessary division in Christ's church. We ought to resist all forms of unnecessary division in Christ's church. This includes tribalism. This includes isolationism. Isolating yourselves from other churches. This includes sectarianism. This includes hyper-denominationalism. We ought to resist all forms of unnecessary division in Christ's church because Christ desires that His church be one. He makes this known in His high priestly prayer in John 17. You don't have to turn there. I'll read a few verses from His prayer to God in the high priestly prayer in John 17. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. In light of that prayer, How do you think Christ feels about those who unnecessarily disturb the unity of his church? Do you think it grieves Christ to see division in his bride, in his body, the church? What do you think his attitude, his posture is toward that? Now, obviously, sometimes division can't be avoided. But I submit to you, even then, it grieves the Lord. I mean, there just comes a time sometimes where there, maybe there needs to be division. Maybe some part of the Lord's body is flirting with dangerous doctrine. And we need to separate ourselves from them. But even that grieves Christ. We ought to resist all forms of unnecessary division in Christ's body. Let me just mention a few that come to my mind. Okay? First of all, what I'm calling hyper-denominationalism. We're Baptists. We're Baptists. Praise God we're Baptists. I was Baptist born, Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. Because it's right. Doctrine, I believe. I'm not ashamed to say that. However, I believe the Lord is doing things in various other denominations and other wings. He has his people in the Presbyterian church. He has his people among Methodists. He has his people among Anglicans. Believe it or not, he has his people among Roman Catholics. In fact, if you look on my uh, uh, shelves at home in my library, there's actually very few Baptists on that shelf. Uh, Most of the brothers that I'm reading are either Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, or Catholic. You say, really? Catholic? Yeah, because anybody who was writing before the year 1500 was Catholic. Okay? Christ has had his people in that body. Okay? A hyper-denominational spirit. The sort of spirit that says, well, I'm Baptist. I only want to hang out with Baptists. I only partner with Baptists. I don't want to support missionaries unless they're Baptists. I really don't want to pray for churches that aren't Baptists. That sort of spirit is displeasing to Christ. He wants unity in his church. He wants oneness in his church. And though it might be appropriate to seek to build bridges and have conversations about our differences and sometimes even debates about them, we should not be so hyper-denominational that we forget how to partner with brothers and sisters in Christ in various denominations. And I recognize that sometimes takes special care and special attention and special accommodation. You need to pray for your leaders as they seek to lead the church in partnering with churches outside of our Baptist confession that God will give grace as we seek to do that. But I think it pleases Christ to express our unity with other bodies and wings in Christ's church. 
Another example of unnecessary disturbance of the unity of Christ's body is slander and gossip against one of Christ's churches, or perhaps a group of Christ's people, or a denomination, or a theological camp. When we speak badly about another, hey, you hear what's going on at First Baptist such and such. I heard that they are uh, preaching this. I heard their pastor uh, untucked his shirt last Sunday. Uh, I heard he's got a tattoo now. Ooh. Hear about that? Hard to believe the Spirit's working there. Don't know that I want to be uh, uh, associated with that church, right? That sort of slander and gossip is displeasing to Christ. And, you know, it's very discouraging to me as I peruse Facebook and Twitter how much of what's posted on Facebook, articles from various blogs and Christian thinkers, how much of it is slander and gossip against Christ's people. And people will say things so recklessly in a tweet as if, uh, you know, somehow there's different codes of ethic and propriety uh, on social media than there would be uh, face-to-face. Listen to me. If you post something that you would not say uh, to a person, to their face, if they were before you, it's probably not good to post. It's probably not pleasing to Christ. You know, I, I, I've said some things recklessly about people who don't believe exactly like I do about, let's say, church polity or soteriology. And then as I've sat across the table from brothers and sisters who think that way but realize they hold it in a way much more um, honorable and respectful and charitable than I may have conveyed, I felt ashamed of myself. It's so easy to think poorly of someone uh, when there's no person in front of you. It's so easy to just let words fly uh, or, or just to send off a quick tweet or a, a Facebook post. But listen to me. Christ does not want us slandering and gossiping against his people. Y'all, that doesn't make us look good. That doesn't do honor to Christ and his bride. Let us be careful about how we speak about his church how we speak about his bride, how we speak against fellow brothers and sisters. There may be times when we need to call out error and we need to call out heresy, but we really need to come to a brother or sister and shake them and try to help them see the truth. It may be done in such a way that, we're never, that we could never be accused of slander and gossip and injustice against Christ's body. A third way that we could disturb the unity of the church, and I'll just be quick here, is by elevating theological distinctives over fundamentals of the faith. Theological distinctives over fundamentals of the faith. Like I just said, I'm a Baptist. That's not as important uh, as the fact that I believe the gospel. Okay, So I ensure fellowship with Presbyterian brothers and sisters. We, we disagree on the mode of baptism. That's a theological distinctive of my particular camp and their particular camp. But the fundamentals of the faith we agree upon. Uh, we agree upon the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedon Confession. Uh, we agree on basic evangelical doctrine. And we should emphasize the fundamentals and never allow our theological distinctives, however important they are, uh, to outstrip the fundamentals of the Christian faith. We need to learn how to be together for the gospel uh, with others. But now thirdly, third application, and I'll move more quickly here as we need to come to a conclusion. Thirdly, we ought to recognize that there will always be imperfections, weaknesses, and blind spots in Christ's church until he returns. We ought to recognize that there will always be imperfections, weaknesses, and blind spots in Christ's church until he returns. We labor in a fallen world with a church, with a bride that is currently imperfect, that has spots and wrinkles and blemishes. And I understand that no particular local church 
is perfect. It's possible uh, that some of you, or maybe some people you know, may be looking for the perfect church. A church that is just everything you want it to be. A church that accommodates all of your preferences. A church that meets all of your needs. A church that doesn't require you to defer to others. A church that is full of people who think exactly like you, who dress exactly like you, who approach marriage and parenting exactly like you, who uh, uh, go to the same restaurants as you, read the same books, listen to the same music, look just like you. A lot of people are looking for churches like that. Two things I want to say to you if that's you. First, let me say that there is no such church. There is no perfect church. The church in this age before Christ come, will have spots and wrinkles and blemishes. There is no perfect church. And you have all sorts of people out there who are bouncing from church to church to church because they just want to find that perfect fit. That church will be everything that they want. I want all my preferences met, all my needs met. Where is that church? And they're looking for it. There is no perfect church. You'll never find it. It's a fruitless search. But the second thing I want to say to you is this, that even if such a church existed... Why would you want to be part of it? A church like that doesn't require your love. A church like that doesn't require you to defer to others. A church like that doesn't require that you grow and mature in your perspectives. A church like that doesn't challenge you to exercise real grace toward others in terms of engaging various disagreements and ways of seeing things differently. A church like that doesn't reflect the glorious diversity of Christ's bride. In this life, The church will always have imperfections and blind spots. And listen to me, it will have more imperfections and blind spots because you and I are part of it. Mm -hmm. The church is full of people just like us who have their blind spots and have their imperfections and have their blemishes and have their wrinkles. And y'all, if we're in this church together long enough, we're going to see them. We're going to see the stain on your shirt. We're going to see the five o'clock shadow, okay? The church has its spots and its wrinkles and its blemishes. That is the church in this age. The question is not, Where can I find a perfect church? But how can I help and serve and love an imperfect church? I make this promise to you now. Emmanuel Church is and will be, to the end of the age, an imperfect church. And those of you who join us, we're asking you that you would commit to love and serve and beautify an imperfect church. A church that is precious to Christ, that needs to be washed, that needs to be cleansed, that needs to look more like the bride. And our ask is that you would help us. But fourthly and finally, we ought to eagerly, we ought to eagerly anticipate the coming marriage of Christ and his bride. Please turn to Revelation chapter 19. I'd like to close by reading this text. Ephesians 5 talks about the relationship Christ has with his church, identifies the church as his bride, tells us that he's purifying his bride, that he's washing her, that he's sanctifying her, Because there's this coming day when he's going to present the bride to himself. Revelation 19 tells us about that coming day. Revelation chapter 19, let's read verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now where does this bride get her garments from? 
get her fine linen. It was granted to her. It was given to her, given her by Christ. And y'all, as our wrinkles and our stains are being washed out, it will only be done by the Lord Jesus because he is determined to present his bride to himself in glory. I want to tell you, each one of you, that every one of you, if you're not a part of that bride, you can be part of that bride today. And you could have your spots and your stains and your wrinkles washed away. And the Lord Christ will be pleased to save you and make you part of his church. And he'll no longer look at you with eyes of fire and judgment and wrath. But rather he'll see you as precious to him. He'll see you as his bride. And he'll be pleased to wash away all your sins. Such that on that last and great and glorious day. He'll present you to himself at the marriage of the Lamb. Present you as his bride. What a glorious prospect. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you were under no obligation to save your church. You were under no obligation to make us your bride. But in your kindness and condescension and your love, you sent Christ into the world to win a people for himself and to beautify a bride that he might present her to himself on the last day. We wait with eager anticipation for the marriage of the Lamb. Now, Father, in this age, as the church is imperfect, would you help us by your grace to serve her and to love her and to engage ourselves for her, not just here locally. May we ever serve the church locally, faithfully, but may we also engage ourselves for your church in every place as we have opportunity. May we pray for the cause of Christ across the world. May you show us ways in which we can partner with other churches in a way that would honor you a way that would bless them. Would you help us, however many years you will give us as a church, would you help us and direct us in how we can serve your church, your bride, your body? And Lord, we pray that we would have the joy and the privilege of seeing many men and women and boys and girls pressed into that mighty company, the church. We would see many baptized into this assembly and that we would see the cause of Christ go forward through missionaries and through church planters and through various partnerships. And that you would be expanding the walls of your church, the gates of your kingdom, and that people would be, be, be pressed in through the ministry of our local body, the ministry of your church in every place. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.